This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today is Thursday, September 5th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. Hello, Mark. Hey, Morgan. How are you today? I am doing okay. This is the first day I've worn pants in forever, and it's only because it's supposed to be like in the 50s later today. (laughs) It's depressing. There you go. Okay means I'm actually doing terrible. I'm mad that summer is over. I don't know if I'm glad or sad that it's over, but it was nice to wake up to a cool morning. All right. Enough of you people. <laughs> All right. Who's joining us? Joining us is Michael Haken. He serves as professor of church history and biblical spirituality at Southern Theological Seminary. He's the author of many books, including Rediscovering the Church Fathers, Who They Were, and How They Shaped the Church. Welcome, Michael. And are there other books you'd like to mention that you've done more recently? Glad to be here with both of you. And uh, yeah, a recent book published by Lexham Press is Loving God and Neighbor with Samuel Pierce. It's part of a series called Live Theology that Lexham Press is doing, and it really kind of tracks the life and thought of a very close friend of William Carey, a man named well, it's great to have you here, Michael, although I, I'm not sure if your most recent titles are a good giveaway for what we'll be talking about today. So I'm going to get into that right now just to bring everyone up to speed. Last month, the New York Times Magazine devoted an entire publication to one issue. I'm going to read from the opening text that is in the online version of that issue. It says this, In August of 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the British colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. In the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. The 1619 Project is a major initiative from the New York Times observing the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery. It aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 and as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. So that is from this recent New York Times magazine issue. As we all know, I hope, the transatlantic slave trade starts further than 1619. In fact, it goes all the way back to the 15th century when Portuguese merchants began trading North African people as slaves. As the slave industry developed, it happened alongside massive changes in the church, including the Reformation in 1517 and subsequent church fighting and division. This week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to better understand how the transatlantic slave trade impacted the church's actions and theology and the role that Protestant and Catholic theology and leadership held when it came to this issue. Michael, we have so many history questions for you today to kind of get into all of this. I'm wondering if maybe the best place that you can start for us is telling us a little bit about what the Catholic Church's first and initial position on slavery was when the slave trade started back in the 15th century. I think it's important maybe even to go back further than that to the patristic period where you have a number of authors, particularly important for the West is Augustine, interacting with slavery in the Roman Empire as well as interacting acting with classical thought by people like Aristotle regarding slavery. Uh, Aristotle essentially argued uh, in many respects that slavery was part of the natural order of things, and some people were essentially slaves by nature. That's just simply the the reality with which they were born. The church responded to that sort of argument, what obviously was used to justify slavery in the Roman Empire, along a number of lines. The only clear abolitionist in the patristic period is Gregory of Nyssa, who argued that slavery violates the image of God in man. To hold another individual as a possession is a violation of his human dignity and value in the sight of God. Augustine is more nuanced, and from our point of view, probably not more not as helpful in thinking about slavery. For Augustine, slavery is not certainly not part of God's first intention in creation, but as a result of the fall. And so, essentially, Augustine's position is embraced through the Middle Ages, 
by the Roman Catholic Church. Thomas Aquinas argues along Augustinian and Aristotelian lines that slavery is not part of God's original intention, but comes into effect in the life of humanity or among human beings as a result of sin. In the latter part of the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church endorsed the idea of holding other human beings as slaves as long as they were not Christians. And probably one of the early figures who would have been reacting against the holding of, of Christians as slaves was Patrick in uh, one of his genuine works. He has two genuine works, condemns the idea of holding Christians as slaves. But the Roman Catholic Church by the late Middle Ages was okay with the enslavement of non-Christians. Can you talk a little bit about how they were drawing distinctions with regards to people's humanity and the religion that they were? How did they say, you know, Christians should not hold other Christians as slaves, but they can hold people who are not Christians? Probably use some of the Old Testament passages that speak about the enslavement of Jews as imposed to the enslavement of the peoples around them. And the dis- there are distinctions made in the Old Testament between the sl- enslavement of Jews, which could only last for so long, and then they had to be freed, and the enslavement of other individuals who are not part of the Jewish community. The Old Testament had become very, very important for the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle, East, Middle Ages because it provided a kind of structure for how to org- organize a Christian society. Beginning with worship issues, it soon began to move over into the whole area of politics, state and church relationships, looking to the Old Testament as a, as a model for how to kind of construct a Christian society. Prior to the beginning of the transatlantic slavery, when we think of Europe, was slavery something that was practiced during that time? Not on any wide scale. In fact, if, if you look at the Mediterranean world, probably the the, the one area where people were enslaved most would have been among the Muslim countries in North Africa. I mean, you do have the feudal system, but the feudal system really is not, I mean, in, in some ways it might, in essence, be like a form of slavery, but it really is not the sort of slavery that you have prevailing in the in the Greco-Roman world, or that becomes part of the modern European experience where the slave really is a thing and has no rights. The feudal system is is not built along those lines at all. There may well have been a few slaves, uh, but slavery does not really exist in the European context until the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade, which, as you said, is the middle of the 15th century. So this is really interesting to me. So essentially the church policy is you are allowed to be a Christian and hold slaves as long as they're not Christians. But in reality, no one's actually really holding slaves at that time period, right? The Catholic Church endorses the enslavement of non-Christians at the beginning of the what we call the Atlantic slave trade, which is really the, the initial forays into that, or the Portuguese mariners enslaving Arab peoples. And so this is uh, okayed by the Church. Or the enslavement of Saracens, as it were, in the uh, Middle East, which would come about during the Crusade. As the Portuguese begin to bring, I'm assuming what this means, right, is that they are going to these countries and territories and taking people there and bringing them to Europe. This is what we are referring to. 1941 is probably the first example of a number of African peoples being enslaved by Portuguese slavers and brought to work on a plantation in Portugal, which is would not become the pattern. The pattern would be the trans... The, the transfer of, of Africans to the New World. Uh, I assume that in Europe there wasn't the demand for that type of labor is one reason? You have the feudal system, which is, you know, by that point in time, very well established. And so you just don't have the need for significant numbers that would open up in the New World as colonies are established and huge plantations to harvest the various products of the uh, New World are uh, kind of set up. So obviously there's a huge plot twist that happens, which is when Columbus goes and finds the quote-unquote new world that probably really changes how a lot of these things are going to go, as you just alluded to. And does the the church essentially just send its blessing? What, What happens with regards to the institution of slavery and the slave trade and the way the church sees itself as either needing to condone all of it or kind of being awakened to the realities of what that was going to look like? It's complex. 
because you do have some figures in the 16th century in the Roman Catholic Church who are against slavery, like Bartolome de, de la Casas, who was a uh, Dominican uh, in the West Indies in the 1530s. He condemned slavery. But the, the essential line that the Roman Catholic papacy develops is the granting of permission to the Portuguese and the Spanish, really giving them monopolies to take as slaves the indigenous peoples, and then also to transport slaves from, from Africa over into the New World. So it's not without opposition, but the Catholic Church, to a significant degree, is involved, and using, as I said earlier, Aristotelian categories through somebody like Aquinas, where slavery is viewed as, yes, it's part of the fallen humanity, and therefore can be legitimated. We sometimes fail to appreciate that that's not, in my reading of history, that's not just a rationale or an excuse that they just came up with in order to justify this. This is the way they view the world all all together. It's a very hierarchical world, and everybody has their duty, their place in it. I think to, to understand what's going on historically, we have to enter into that type of imagination and realize that's the worldview they're looking at the world, that they're looking at experience from. It's not the case that, that they have slavery, and then they, they, need, they need to find scripture texts to support this. You're very correct that the, the whole perspective of the medieval world is deeply hierarchical, with levels of authority and obedience and subjection. And slavery simply fits into that pattern. However, maybe the the Reformation does not with regards to that. And I'm curious about the ways in which many of the reformers interacted with slavery and the slave trade. Because of the fact that there is not significant numbers of or the presence of slaves in Europe, the reformers really do not it's, not, it's not a major topic on their theological horizon, but they do have to deal with it when they're expositing scripture and exegeting scripture. So a good example here is Calvin, I think. Calvin is very, very concerned about expositing, ex- exegeting scripture in its historical context, and then making application to the world of his day. He condemns slavery. Really, he begins with an anthropology that's based on Genesis 1, the the whole idea of the image of God in every human being, and therefore the necessity of treating men and women with dignity, because that, that is recognizing the imago dei, the image of God in them. And so for him, there are passages you can find in Calvin, where he is very critical of, definitely critical of slave men stealing and the whole slave trade, because this is a violation of the law. Uh, Slavery, for him, is part of a fallen world. There are passages where he appears to be very critical of slavery, because it's a violation of the Imago Dei. On the other hand, there are passages where you'd expect him to be critical of slavery, like his exegesis of Philemon. And there he's dealing, he deals with it along more along the lines that you would somebody like Aquinas. This is simply part of the reality of uh, the world in which we live. So the reformers do not really make a substantial break with the Catholic Church on this issue. And you really have to wait until the, in some respects, until the slave trade is in full force that you start to find Protestants realizing what this means and the horror of it. And I would think, certainly at the beginning of the Reformation, as many books have pointed out, they're still thinking, their worldview is still very medieval in a lot of, lot of respects. So I think they would still buy into the, hier- the fundamentally hierarchical view, although it's already beginning to shift at that point, it seems to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Luther is a very medieval man in many respects. Calvin is 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 nowhere near as medieval in terms of his acceptance of medieval categories or thought. But they're still living and operating within that larger worldview of hierarchicalism. And slavery can be fitted into that context. So one thing that I kind of struggle and puzzle about when I think about this time is that you have the Catholic Church sanctioning slash participating along with many of these conquistadors that go to different parts of the New World and they're building small empires there and cities and in some ways, I guess, proselytizing or converting the people that live there, though that is obviously often done in usually a very violent context. But you also have missions, from what I understand, where the Catholic Church sent out people to China or to Japan as well with not the same type of, I don't know, military pretext. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about how missions and missionaries kind of worked alongside the slave trade or sometimes maybe against it. I don't know. 
that that's a huge topic in some in many respects. The earliest example, really, of cross-cultural missions is the Catholic Church's uh, during the Reformation period is this the Catholic Ch- Church's Jesuit missions to to the Far East. There, they encountered very sophisticated cultures from the European point of view, which certainly matched anything that they found in Europe, would obviously have reinforced the idea that Europeans are not the acme of uh, human development and would have reinforced the very, very basic uh, view that comes through scriptures that every human being has the image of God in them. The encounter of the Europeans with indigenous peoples in the Americas had left them feeling that in their minds, the cultures of the indigenous peoples were substandard. They were not really civilized. This is especially true in North America, where you have the kind of pattern of life that most of the indigenous peoples followed. They didn't establish ur- large urban centers like Europe. They were more migratory in terms of their, their habits of their life during the year. It reinforced to the Europeans that the North American cultures were you know, they really were not up to par in terms of civilization. The Far East would have challenged that. The people involved in the Far East missions were, were Jesuits during this period of time, obviously Roman Catholics, uh, not Protestants. It'd be interesting to kind of pursue the different ways in which Catholic, the Catholic Church and Protestants uh, developed in their thinking about other people groups and then the issue more specifically of slavery. You know, one interesting fact on the ground is that even though the Catholic Church, in a sense, blessed the ownership of slaves and that they divided, they let the Portuguese and the Spanish divide up the New World as they would, as they wanted to, well, they actually set a particular line about that. But the point is, is that even though it seems to me that Latin America and would have there would have been plenty of opportunity to make use of slaves to help further the economy of those parts of the world. When a push comes to shove, in those colonies, we don't have slavery as we have it in, in North America. It just never develops there like it did. It, do you have any idea what, what historians think about that? Part of it, obviously, has got to do with the way in which people were being brought over Africans and the way in which the Spanish and Portuguese in those colonies viewed non-European people. The sort of racism that obviously is critical to the development of the slave trade and the way in which Africans were viewed as subhuman is very much a European, uh, Northern European, sadly, Protestant perspective. Uh, Whereas the Spanish and the Portuguese regularly intermarried with both indigenous peoples. Uh, You can see this clearly if you trace the kind of genealogical descent or the genealogical ancestry of people in, you know, places like Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, the only exception, major exception being Argentina, are the way in which the indigenous peoples get really mixed into the families and lives etc. of the Spanish and the Portuguese. And they, they, they have the same with, with the Africans they bring over eventually too. So there is slavery there, horrendous slavery, but the openness of the Spanish and the Portuguese to intermarriage with free Africans, etc. is very different from, uh, from North America. The other thing that I wanted to add too is that when I was in Peru a couple of years ago, they talked about one of the things that had happened is that they had actually imported African slaves to Peru in that particular world, the Indian world, but the altitude actually was extremely hard for them to acclimatize to. And so many people, many of these enslaved people ended up dying as a result of that. The Spanish had ended up having to rely on indigenous labor in those contexts. So some, to some extent, some of it was just like physiological things that ended up turning out the way that they did. I'm wondering too, since we were talking about Latin America for a bit, if you can talk about when the transatlantic slave trade started in what is now Brazil. The the Portuguese are really the first involved in the transatlantic slave trade. And the demarcation that Mark referred to earlier that the papacy endorsed between Portugal and Spain, where Portugal could establish colonies in Spain, uh, Portugal ends up with what we call Brazil. They begin to realize the value of uh, what they have there in terms of natural resources, significant numbers of the amount of labor that they need to harvest those resources. And because they'd already been involved in in the European context in taking Africans into slavery to Portugal, it becomes a natural that they begin to, to transport slaves across uh, the Atlantic from West Africa. By the mid-15th century, the Europeans are kind of breaking out of the 
the Muslim encirclement, which began in the 700s, and where Islam had basically bottled the uh, European Christianity up into that, what we call Europe now. The age of exploration that begins in the 15th century breaks out from that, and Portugal is one of the earliest Portuguese mariners are in the North Atlantic harvesting cod, but they're also beginning to explore Africa. Uh, their encounter in West Africa with Africans, part of that encounter is the enslavement of West Africans. And at the same time, because of what they're opening up in Brazil, the transference of, of Africans to Brazil. Just a couple of clarification points. The transatlantic slave trade to Brazil starts, I'm assuming, well before 1619 then. Yes, it would start in the uh, in the early 16th century. So, in the, by by the time you hit 1619, you're, the Portuguese have probably been transporting uh, slaves across the Atlantic for the best part of close to 100 years. The West Indies already experienced, to some degree, slavery in the uh, 1530s. The Las Casas condemned slavery in 1537. So, you've already that this is that's pretty well. 100 years before the uh, the landing of slaves in uh, Jamestown in 1619. So let's focus in on Bartolome de las Casas for a second, right? Because from everything that I've heard from you and from Mark, it seems like this is he's going he he's making an extremely countercultural argument and one that's not necessarily surfaced at all with his contemporaries in the faith. What is his rationale? What is his theological argument for him to speak out against what he's seen? I indicated earlier, there was, there has been a strain among Christian authors going all the way back clearly to Gregory Nyssa, in which you have the emphasis on the Imago Dei, the fact that these are these are human beings who share with us or share with the Europeans the the image of God, and therefore the the whole idea of of enslaving other human beings is a fundamental violation of that. De las Casas basically draws upon that 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 tradition which goes back I'm not saying he read Nyssa I'm pretty certain he probably did not there is this kind of minority view against people like Aquinas who would have argued for the legitimacy of slavery given the nature of the fallen state of fallen humanity his arguments then would have would, would have drawn from the image the, the Imago Dei one thing that I think is interesting we keep talking about Spain and Portugal here but from what I understand in church history please correct me if I'm wrong I don't really ever see the Reformation breakout in at least strong, voluminous numbers in either of those countries. And so it's really about the Catholic Church's relationship with or with the people in those countries. And also we're talking about a particular idea of the world and of theology in here. But when we, when we we by the time we get to 1619, almost every single colony in what becomes you know the United States later on is one that's founded by Protestants. And I'm just wondering if that already makes things different by the time that slavery starts there. Yes, probably to some degree. The Reformation clearly didn't take root in either Spain or Portugal, and there are, you know, there are significant reasons for that. The various colonies that are founded in America on the East Coast are all Protestant. Well, except for Quebec. And wouldn't it be also except for Maryland? Well, Maryland's a bit later, but in terms of the initial colonies in the early 17th century, all of them would be Protestant except for Quebec, Nouvelle-France. And there is an attempt to even make that Huguenot colony, which if it had become a Huguenot colony, the history of North America would probably be quite different. Now, on the West Coast, you have Spanish settlement in California. But in the in the development of what we call the United States, yes, it, the Protestants are critical. I'm curious, as these colonies start founding, what, what type of early, I don't know, arguments do you see or debate about whether or not the transatlantic slavery should be permitted there? In the uh, 1570s, when Sir John Hawkins, who was a uh, Elizabethan mariner, intercepted a Spanish slave ship destined for Cuba and took the slaves and himself sold them. Queen Elizabeth I was horrified by this. This is something that the Spanish and the Portuguese did, but the English did not. The 1619 event would still have been viewed with some horror by authorities back in Britain, because it's not really until the 1650s, 1660s, when the emerging English slash British Empire begins to occupy lands in the Caribbean, places like Jamaica, Barbados, that the English start to get drawn into the slave trade. 
1619 is, is very significant because it's the first establishment of slaves, slavery in America. But it would not have taken place without significant criticism. There would have been those who, the way in which the authorities reacted to, to Sir John Hawkins only 40 years earlier, with just absolute horror that a British sailor, an English sailor could do this. It needs to be, while it is significant as a beginning, it needs to be differentiated from the significant endorsement and involvement of the English in the slave trade by the end of the 17th century. And it does sound like you, if you haven't said it out loud, the enslavement of Africans and their use of slaves in the world is driven by, more than anything, economic. Economics are critical. The English, they take over colonies in the Caribbean, particularly the Caribbean, and find such goods as sugar and other various commodities that were never known in Europe. The sweetest thing in Europe up until the discovery of sugar would have been honey. Initially, the taking over the various plantations in a place like Jamaica, the, the harvesting of sugarcane, the English initially tried to interest the Irish to go and work on these plantations. <laughs> Not surprising. Um, and uh, that was not going to work. My mother was Irish, and the Irish have very little melanin in their skin. They were basically de decimated by the sun. Moreover, again, although the, it, it, this is important, the English perspective on the Irish, the Irish were subhuman. And he, well into the 19th, early 20th century, the Irish were regarded as uncivilized, barbaric individuals. Growing up in England as a Roman Catholic, Irish Roman Catholic, as I did, I'm very conscious of the prejudice against Irish Catholicism by the by English Protestants. So that did not work, but it was based on, a, on a, the idea we're going to employ subhumans. The British then turned to turn to the model established by the Portuguese and the Spanish. But yeah, driving all this, is, is sugar and the various products of the of the West Indies and then also the Americas, things like cotton eventually. And so economics is critical in this. When William Cooper, in a poem where he makes fun of the whole slave trade, uses this example, while uh, he he puts his words in the in the in the the mouth of a person who would hate slavery, but he said, "I must be mum because uh, I want my sugar and rum." The economics is absolutely critical to the drive, but it is also attended by the ideological justification of slavery via racism. We can. I want to get more into that in a second, but you know, you you talked about this sense of horror. I don't know exactly if it was horror what they had done or horror at stooping to you know the lows of their foes, the Spanish, you know, and the Portuguese, who I know that the English did not really love during that time, when they began to introduce slavery for economic reasons, was there any pushback by the Church of England? No, not, not, I mean, there might have been, uh, there might be some uh, individuals here and there who were opposed. But again, you see, all of this is far from, it's far away from England. It's taking place in the colonies. Enslavement in England is virtually unknown. There is an African community in England that's not been well known up until recently. I have a friend who is, or an acquaintance who is an historian in Norfolk in England, in East Anglia. And there was an African community in East Anglia going all the way back into the 1400s. These are probably traders who came and so on, became a critical part of the community, which is interesting. So the, you've got these attitudes of racism, but you do have Africans in England who are living as free citizens, working in the community, contributing so the enslavement that's taking place is far away. It's not seen as with the sort of social media we have today. Well, you know, the sort of thing that's going on in Hong Kong currently. And you can see the horror right there of the kind of potential tyranny that will be brought into that former British protectorate. Nobody's seeing any of this. As it, you know, it does develop, the, the amount of opposition to it is minimal. And it's really not until you get into the, the early 1700s that you get Quakers particularly in the forefront of the argument against slavery. And these are Quakers in the colonies. Were there any others besides the Quakers in the colonies that were against slavery? Any unique individuals in Puritan America, for example? There are some of the uh, the Puritan figures. It's Samuel Sewell, if I recall his first name. I think it's Samuel Sewell, who was involved in the Salem witch trials, who has a sermon on Joseph and the the enslavement of Joseph, and he is very critical of Puritan New England and its involvement in the slave trade, both in terms of slave ships leaving New England, being involved in the transatlantic passage, and then also the use of slaves. But going into the, let's go into the 18th century now, we, we're all familiar, or maybe not we all are, I am familiar with the fact that George Whitfield uh, seemed to be against or at least ambivalent about slavery early in his career, but then later began using slaves on some of his orphanages. How did he compare with Wesley on this matter? 
who, who would be the two leading evangelists of the early 18th century in, in America? It's a complete contrast. Now, again, you could argue if Whitfield had lived longer than he dies in 1770, if he had lived longer, he would have changed his mind. Because it's really not until the early 1770s that Wesley comes out with a couple of tracts against slavery, where he condemns it as some of all villainies under heaven. Wesley was influenced by uh, Quakers, men like Anthony Benzet, B-E-N-E-Z-E-T, who was an ardent opponent of slavery. He's forgotten today, but Wesley basically took his writings and, as he often did, plagiarized them. We wouldn't... (laughs) There were no no laws in the 18th century, although he did get called up short a number of times by by people of his day for basically taking the views of others and setting them forth as his own. But he basically takes Benzet's works and just plagiarizes them, and in this case, for good, because turns British Methodism against slavery. And uh, that's significant because the the poor, the, the key areas where Wesley would have had support would have been places like Bristol, and Bristol is a major slave trading port. It was, the, the merchants, the slave ships set off from Bristol, many of those, pretty well everybody who would have worked in Bristol in relation to maritime trade was implicated in the slave trade. It's in a context like this that Wesley makes his most vehement attacks on slavery. Whitfield, on the other hand, as you mentioned, initially was ambivalent or against slavery, and then became and then endorsed it when he realized he needed help in taking care of the grounds in Savannah, where he had established an orphanage. And contrary to the intentions of Georgia when it was initially set up, it was initially set up without slaves, and the governor, the initial governor, wanted it to be free from slaves. Whitfield actually brings Afri- buys Africans and brings them into Georgia, technically illegally. Obviously, in his mind, he would treat them better than some masters, but he still endorses slavery. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. Mark jumped ahead to like the mid 1700s. <laughs> I want to spend a little bit more time in the 1600s talking about a couple things. So you had mentioned the Puritans earlier. Can you talk a little bit about the way that their colony becomes intertwined with the transatlantic slave trade? You would have a few slaves, obviously not tons. So Jonathan Edwards, although he's 18th century, probably had in his life in his home, five, six slaves. You don't have the plantations that you would have developing in the South because you don't have the sort of products from the South that you would have. Uh, The initial interest in the North from an economic point of view would have been beaver. You read the accounts of early explorers in New England. New England was overrun with beavers. The beaver trade was vital to European economy and British economy because beaver trade had kind of dried up from Russia. And that was a key reason for opening up New England. The ships that brought the pilgrims over, for instance, in the early 1620s, were expected to go back filled with beaver pelts. You didn't have the economic call for large numbers of slaves, but there were slaves. Probably the most critical thing for the pure New England was the the maritime vessels sailing out of ports like Boston, Rhode Island, and involved in the transportation of slaves from Africa to the mostly the southern colonies, and then returning to revictual resupply in uh, in New England. It was. Primarily in that way, but there would have obviously been slaves in New England. This is really interesting. I I definitely will say so far what I've learning is it's hard to find people that are opposing this, that it was so entrenched in the worldview per what you guys were saying earlier. So that leads me to the Quakers who seem to somehow have found a, a conscience on this. What is it? Is it something in their tradition? Is there some experience that happened to one of their leaders? 
Quakerism is driven, early Quakerism as it emerges in the 1640s, 1650s, is driven by a anti-hierarchicalism. The Quakers were accused of being disrespectful to their elders. They refused to use the sort of, the ways in which you would acknowledge somebody as a superior to you. I mean, British society is deeply class-ridden, and the Quakers are against all of it. They're part of the that world that emerges in the 1640s with this British Civil Wars, anti-authority, that world throws up groups like the Baptists, uh, along with the Quakers, Muggletonians, ranters, levelers, diggers, a whole host of different groups, some of them proto-communists, many of them emphasizing the equality of all men. And so there's a famous statement that's made that the smallest he in England has a right to his life as the greatest he, statement that was made in Parliament during this period of time. And the Quakers are part of this, and they, they believe that every human being is indwelt or has opportunity to look within to the light within, the, which they sometimes identify as the Spirit of Christ. There is from the very beginning of Quakerism a, an egalitarian impulse. I think that that probably is driving them to some degree. Baptists have the same, but all too easily Baptists in the Americas start to fit in with the kind of societal structures. Quakers don't. The Quakers find themselves, up until the 1670s, they're really outré. So one of them, for instance, Solomon Eccles, uh, had a spiritual gift for going naked as a sign. And um, What does that would, mean? <laughs> uh, he would turn up at church, either stark naked or ripping his clothes off as he proceeded down the aisle, and begin to preach how God was going to strip off all the false righteousness of, the, of his hearers. And uh, he did this for about 20 years, got himself in prison numerous times. The first, the first Quakers who went into Oxford when John Owen, the great Puritan leader, was there as, as the cha- vice chancellor uh, were two women who, when people didn't respond to their message, took off their upper clothing and proceeded to preach half-nude and were arrested. And they, <laughs> they obviously had the same idea of the idea of going naked for a sign. They took this from a passage, I think it's in, his, I think it's in Isaiah. So the, the Quakers were outré. They were on the fringe of society. They had an egalitarian impulse. It is an irony, I think, of church history that such people were at the forefront of abolitionism in the early 18th century. It reminds me of early Pentecostalism, especially at Azusa Street, where uh, you have uh, not just men, but women and African-Americans all sort of sharing leadership and sharing uh, prophetic moments. And it was one of the things that the early the L.A. Times that reported on it remarked about. And it's also a charismatic enthusiastic in the classical sense of the word moment in church history for this group of people. And it led to very similar extremism, as you noted, but also a kind of an egalitarian view of the world. Yeah, that, that that's a very, very helpful example. Well, and I thought it's interesting, too, that you had noted that John Wesley uses some of their ideas you know, to ultimately like make, make his points and that's kind of where they form from. So I do think that many people are familiar that there were a number of British abolitionists and I wouldn't, I would love to talk about them for a little bit. And I'd also like to know if there was ever that level of abolitionism that existed in Spain or Portugal or any of their colonies. British abolitionism obviously gets its rise. Uh, it's, it's Quaker tracks. The correspondence between the American colonies and Britain was very extensive. And so we can actually talk about an, a kind of an Anglophone transatlantic world. And America was part of the, the British Empire. The uh, Quakers really take the, the lead. The Methodists, after Wedley endorses the Quaker abolitionism, by the end of the 18th century, you could not be a, a, a Methodist in England in good standing and be in, involved in the slave trade or, be, or hold slaves. That does not prevail in America. Francis Asbury, who really is just a remarkable figure, he realizes pretty quickly, he is initially convinced of Wesley's view, but as he begins to preach it in the South, he finds significant opposition by Southern Methodists and makes a pragmatic decision to kind of hone back his emphases. And that was fateful. In his mind, that he would, he, would, he would have lost the Methodist movement uh, in the South if he did not tone down his attacks on, on slavery. And he does so. But it would have been interesting, what if? He probably would not have carried with him as many Methodists, but there would have been a key force 
at the heart of early evangelicalism in America that would have been abolitionists. Uh, is this the same time we're, ha- we're starting to see a split in Presbyterianism and in Baptist, Baptist circles as well? Because we do end up with the Southern Baptist Church, and for uh, at least a century or more, we had the Southern Presbyterian Church. Yeah, I mean, those breaks take place in the 1840s, but certainly the uh, Francis Asbury dies in 1816. But he could have, again, he, that that's a fateful decision. He could have produced a body of evangelicals who are anti-slavery well back into the 1790s, 50 years before those breaks. And the, and the South, there may well have been some who would have followed him. So the Methodists are critical. By the time you get to the late 18th century, you obviously have a number of key Anglicans, men like William Wilberforce. Wesley, of course, regarded himself as an Anglican up until his death and was an Anglican, but he had taken a number of steps really to break with the Anglican Church. He's not buried in, in an Anglican cemetery, unlike his brother Charles. And then also by that time, you have significant opposition among British Baptists. And so when William Carey writes his famous tract for missions, and the question comes, where are we going to fund this? Because the churches that were involved initially in the mission, the ba- what becomes the Baptist Missionary Society, sending Carey to India, were very poor churches. They were not wealthy or well-off. Carey says, well, what we need to do is you need to give up West India sugar, which has been purchased with blood. And the money you save, give to missions. <laughs> How does that go? <laughs> Is that successful? Yes. Did people oh, like enormous. that? Oh. I mean, I, I could easily track for the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes, example after example of Baptist leaders in Britain in the 1780s, 1790s, men like uh, James Dore, Robert Robinson, Abraham Booth. He has a fabulous sermon on slave trade as inimical, inimical to human dignity. Overwhelmingly, the English Baptists are absolutely opposed to, first of all, the slave trade, they key support of Wilberforce, and then the great fight against slavery, against the uh, slavery itself, is led by key Baptists like William Nibb, known as Nibb the Notorious, who was in Jamaica and was horrified by what he saw in, in a context where there were three quarters of a million African slaves and 18,000 Europeans. This also provides the foundation for a man like Spurgeon, who uh, would say something in the 1850s like, I'll sit down with anybody with theological differences from mine who loves the Lord Jesus at the supper, at the Lord's table, but I will not sit down with a slave trader, which led to his sermons being burned in the South during the 1860s. America, American Baptists developed quite differently. To, to wrap the show up, another takeaway that I guess I'm having from this podcast is just for how long Christianity and the idea of slavery kind of really existed, coexisted. As it pertains to especially this transatlantic slavery, the middle passage, the horrors that happened with regards to, you know, forcibly migrating people around, what would you say are maybe one or two of the lesser known or more surprising impacts that this ends up having on church life, church theology, and the impact of the church? I think obviously the, the the major impact is just the heritage of racism that is in significant quarters of Western culture and particularly American culture today. But you you can't have a society that is its economic basis is tied to a policy that i.e. slavery that is deeply racist for so long without that just infiltrating every nook and cranny of a culture. This I'm not I'm not please no I'm not saying here that, you know, every American thereby every white American thereby is a racist. It it infiltrates enormous areas of life that you would never think that it would be would be impacted. And and changing this is it is not a work of, you know, a few years. There needs to be significant time spent rethinking, looking at the past and how that has shaped us and making changes. Like I said at the top, we are currently at the 400th anniversary of 1619 this year. The United States has not been around for a longer time than the amount of time that slavery was allowed and sanctioned. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, 
Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, thank you for walking us through all of that type of stuff and giving us a really interesting sense of the history that's going on. If people have feedback for us, they are welcome to leave that for us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. I just wanted to remind everyone this podcast is made possible by people who subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And we recently released our September issue. Mark, you know, we talk about all the time you end up reading everything in this issue or everything in every single issue. What stuck out to you? The cover story, because I happen to be the editor who procured that. It was pitched to me by a professor in uh, at Houston Baptist University, Lou, Lou Marcus. Pieces about homeschooling, classical homeschooling phenomenon that's going on in especially evangelical circles. I've been aware of this just personally, because I have a number of friends who send their kids to classical Christian education, and I'm in many conversations in the Wheaton area about this topic. But what I didn't know, and what this, what this article does really well is to say, well, how did this whole thing get started? Especially think about this. Back in the uh, 60s and 70s, evangelicals were still some of the leading critics of studying pagan philosophers and pagan history, because what good would it do? And now they've turned out to be the people who are the the biggest champions of it. And so this article explores its beginning and how that shift took place and why it took place. And I think it gives you an insight into the homeschooling movement, especially classical home, classical education that we're seeing growing in such leaps and bounds right now. Yeah, I read the piece today, and I think I was really surprised, to say the least, that Christians used to not want people to read the classics. Though, as I also learned today, Aristotle was condoning slavery, so maybe there was some (laughs) good reason behind that. Anyway, it's definitely an interesting piece. Text on our cover story basically says, could evangelical homeschoolers save Western pagan thought? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All right. If you want to read it, you can become a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Order ct.com slash quick to listen. All right. So Mark, I just wanted to do a brief mention on slow to speak. You and I talked about the different traditions with regards to end times theology last week. And we had talked about, I think at one point, you know, what denominations still have, still hold to pre-millennialism with regards to end times theology, because we were specifically talking about the Evangelical Free Church of America deciding that they wanted to kind of distance themselves from it. So we got an email from a listener. Her name is Jill Constantino. I hope I said that correctly, Jill. Otherwise, I'm sorry. And she just said, I'm listening to the latest quick to listen and wanted to flag up that the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church denomination is still premillennial in its statement of faith. Makes sense historically with the priority on missions. Will be interesting to see how long it sticks around. It is interesting, yeah. A lot of people I have come to admire in the last, you know, 10 years in reporting for CT and working with Christians across the globe. I'm, I'm just so impressed with the heritage and how the Christian Missionary Alliance have made such an impact on the world. They're the people whose churches in Vietnam, for example, are the most prolific or have been. So anyway, it'll be interesting. It will. Yeah. And how it might affect their mission and right. work too, if they decide to end up dropping it. Anyway, thank you, Jill. And I appreciate everyone who sends us stuff like that. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, we are going to conclude the show with precious moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. Mark goes first. I basically have to tear tear my trailer apart, a little trailer that I bought, because the floor is riding out in part. So I have to take out all the interior shelving, furniture, cabinets, and to get at get at the ba- the subfloor and to replace it. And it was hot, and it was not very pleasant work. And I hurt, managed to hurt my back not because I lifted anything; I must have twisted it in some way. But I still think that was that was a lot of fun. Great. <laughs> so you know me, I have that mechanical flair that I like to get into things that are physical and that you touch and you have to figure out. And that always gives me a nice mental break in my other work, which is, has to do with abstract ideas floating around in, in a, a ether world. 
Absolutely. All right. Where can people find you outside of this? I publish something called The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I. It's a weekly newsletter in which I link to articles. Sometimes I comment, sometimes not. There are many subscribers. Mark almost always comments. Well, I comment, but sometimes I go on for two or three paragraphs, so like I did in this last one, which gets me into trouble sometimes, which is fine because pretty much anyone who writes me a quick on the gallery report, it's rare that I don't reply. That's one thing I enjoy about it. I I interact with people who agree with me or disagree with me, and uh, they often correct me. Michael, do you have a precious moment for us? My father-in-law passed away and went to be with the Lord about a month ago. My wife's been struggling with this. I'm just very thankful to God for the support that I've received from leadership at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, my academic dean, the provost, who've uh, given me time to be my wife. We started classes two weeks ago. I've not missed any of my classes, but they've allowed me time to, to spend with my wife, which has been very, very important and just just a reminder to me of just uh, my own thankfulness of, of teaching at such a school. Yeah, it's really generous, right, when people give you the flexibility to be able to be there for other people. Can you remind people, Michael, what the name of your latest book is and if they can find you anywhere, you know, online? Yeah, Loving God and Neighbor with Samuel Pierce, and uh, that's published by Lexham Press tremendous publishing house to work with. My blog can be found at www.andrewfullercenter, all, all one word, so andrewfullercenter, all lowercase, dot org. And that's on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary website. Blog there usually twice a week on various things like Mark was saying, most of them historical. And then um, also we have their details regarding things that we do in terms of conferences, publications, All right. My precious moment is that I got to go to New York last week to watch the U.S. Open with my dad. Thank you, Dad, for making that possible. It was great. The U.S. Open is one of my favorite sporting events to attend. On Saturday, we watched 12 hours of tennis. It was awesome. (laughs) I love being outside for that long. and. There's just so much tennis to watch. Some of it was not really high-level tennis, but we finished the night with a fantastic match. There's a tennis player named Gael Bonfils who basically looks like a dancer when he's on the court. It's just amazing. The the types of, like, leaps and jumps that he had, you know, there's a kind of, like, banal way to do that. And I he, like, looked like a pixie on the court. It was, it was fantastic. The match went seven – or the match went five – sets, which was great. And we left at like 1130 that night. Apparently there was another match after that, but we did not stay for that. But that was a really great event. All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you end up listening to podcasts. But if you go to Apple Podcasts, if you want to rate and review the show there, that would be great. We will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.